Also, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, uh, but there's been some changes going on on our campus. Um, maybe you, you caught the, the giant structure that's going up to sort of enclose a portion of our courtyard so that we can use it year-round in the Florida sun. And that's super exciting for me uh, because I have stood in that courtyard in the full heat of the Florida sun, and uh, it's tough. <laughs> It's tough to bear, um, but as we continue to make improvements on our campus and continue to update things, I couldn't be more excited for what God is uh, going to use these facilities for in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. But I'll admit to you, uh, as somebody who's been at Baylife a long time, it's a little bit jarring to see this campus that I could have navigated with my eyes closed shifting a little bit. I actually crunched the numbers the other day, and if, if I calculated right, I have been at Baylife for almost 17 years. That is, oh, maybe you can applaud for that. I don't know. Maybe I've been a burden on Baylife for 17 years. Who knows? I've been here almost 17 years. That's a long time. That's over half of my life and all of my adult life. And uh, I'm so grateful for the, the training in Scripture and in the gospel that I've received here at Baylife Church. Uh, but I, I was here when that building next door was put up, back when there was still a rock climbing wall in that building, if anybody can remember it. I was here when this building was opened. Uh, I've been here a long time, and like I said, I can navigate this campus in my sleep, or I could, <laughs> until things started changing a little bit. But here's what I've noticed uh, about people like myself who've been in a particular church or just in the church for a long time is that we begin to develop kind of our own native language, our own way of speaking about things that can sometimes be confusing for people in the outside world. Like I've, I've had the, the blessing of seeing a number of friends and acquaintances come to know Jesus over the years and they step into a church and it's like Christians are speaking a foreign language. And, and that's necessary, right? The language of theology is foreign to a world that doesn't know God. But what I've also noticed, and I think this has become increasingly common, is that uh, the language that we speak in the church, sometimes I'm not even sure if we know what we're saying. Uh, it's that, that uh, Princess Bride classic phrase, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. We've got all these catchy phrases and terms that we toss around, but we're not even really agreed amongst ourselves on what we're talking about, and it makes it hard to have a conversation. Let me, let me give you an example of that. One of the popular buzzwords, especially in the mid-2000s, is authenticity, right? We want to be a church that's authentic. And for some people, an authentic church is one that is full of people who are willing to be honest about their struggles and their sins and their shortcomings. I want a church where people don't hide what they're going through but are willing to be honest, for other people, authenticity is sort of shorthand for, you know, if you say that person's authentic, what you mean is that person says whatever is on their mind without any filter whatsoever, which could also, you could also use the synonym rude for that as well, right? That's you just being rude. It's not you being authentic. Sometimes you should filter what you're saying. But we use that word and we, we don't always mean the same thing by it. Another example, community. I can't tell you. How many times when I was the college pastor here, I would hear a student say, I'm just looking for a place where can I, I can have community. And that was a shorthand way of saying, I'm looking for a place where I can find a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Uh, that's what was meant when they said that. Um, I just couldn't find community there. So nobody was single in the college ministry. That's actually what you meant. 
But for others, when we say community, what, what we genuinely mean is we, we want to find close friends with whom we can share our lives and walk through all the ups and downs. And for other people, community doesn't quite look like that. For them, it's just, I want a church where somebody checks in on me from time to time. I don't need you to ask me every week how I'm doing, but I just want to feel connected. And the, the situation gets more complicated when we make essential statements about what sits at the heart of the Christian message. A simple phrase like Jesus died to save us from our sins can be open to misinterpretation, especially for somebody who is not a Christian who's coming to church for the first time. Like, we have to be clear. When we say Jesus, here's who we believe Jesus is. And then when we say that Jesus died to save us, we have to say, you know, here's what we think salvation is. Here's what we think it means to be saved. And then when we say Jesus died to save us from our sins, well, then we've got to actually explain what sin is and why it's so serious that it would require all of this stuff in the first place. I don't know if you've noticed, but culturally, we throw the term sin around a lot. Like, you could go to Chili's and order a chocolate cake that's described as, like, the sinful chocolate cake. And certainly, that cake didn't require Jesus to die on the cross. We've got to do some defining. We've got to explain what we mean when we use our terminology. And it's that last term, sin, that I want to spend most of our time together this morning tackling because it's a word that we keep using, but I fear that especially if we've grown up in and around the church, we don't always know what sin is and why it's so serious. Why does the Bible treat it with such gravity? And what does it mean to say that we are sinful? That's what I, I want to explore this morning, at least in part. We could never do justice to the fullness of Scripture in one sermon. But my hope is that we can begin to see what's really going on under the surface when we talk about human sin. I know uh, in my senior year of high school, I bought my first car, and it could not have been featured in the Baylife car show. It was a $1,000 car. I had scraped together money for years. I actually taught guitar lessons here at the church, which I wasn't particularly good at. So if you were one of my students and you don't play guitar now, I'm sorry. Um, I'd only taken like three or four guitar lessons in my life. So once I got past lesson three with my students, I didn't have anything else to teach them. (laughs) But I taught three or four guitar lessons per student for years, and I scrounged together $1,000 that... I used to buy my friend Chris Groover's 1995 GMC Sonoma. It was a manual transmission car with no air conditioning, which was beautiful in the Florida summer. Um, But I loved that truck. I loved that truck. I had it for about two or three years. And uh, probably a year and a half in, I started to notice that the engine seemed louder than it was when I bought it. It was kind of making this gurgling noise. It sounded like a diesel truck, which was awesome because I wanted a diesel truck, but could not afford one. And so I thought, man, this is like the best of both worlds. I get a truck that's cheap, but it also sounds like a diesel truck. What could go wrong? Uh, Some things could go wrong and did go wrong. It was about three years into driving this truck around. I think it was like my sophomore year of college that I was getting ready for class, and I started my car, and it gurgled and died and didn't start again. And so I emailed my professor, said I'm not going to be at class today, and I pushed the truck over to my neighbor's house because I couldn't afford to take it to a mechanic. And he popped the hood, and he pulled out of the engine the shredded pieces of my timing chain. 
Now, if you're a car person, which I'm not, but I've learned because all of my cars break down in 10,000 different ways, um, the timing chain in this particular car, uh, when it goes bad, lots of other things go bad. And all of the, the pieces of the engine start slamming into each other, and it bends things, and it breaks things, and it more or less totals the engine of your car. And my neighbor, as he's pulling out the, the shrapnel from uh, what's left of my engine, he says, you know, normally when these things are about to go bad, uh, you can kind of tell, like the, the car starts making weird noises. Did you notice anything like that? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> right, because this thing that I thought was insignificant, this thing that I thought was not even that big of a deal, was actually the sound of my car coming apart. I had dismissed it as, you know, look at my, my cool manual transmission truck that sounds like a diesel engine, but what it actually was under the surface was the sound of my car being ripped to shreds. And I wonder if that's not the case for many of us when it comes to the issue of sin. We don't think it's that big of a deal, or at least our particular sins that we don't think are hurting anyone are that big of a deal. And yet the way that scripture describes sin and engages with the idea of sin, it paints a picture of something that under the hood is actually profoundly destructive and utterly corrosive to the goodness of God's world. And so so I want to examine that specifically through one Old Testament passage this morning, through the lens of Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament towards the end, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of background, because I would venture to say that um, in church in general, we don't engage with Jeremiah very much past putting Jeremiah 29.11 on our coffee cups. Um, So Jeremiah is a figure that some theologians refer to as the weeping prophet, um, which hopefully none of you have a nickname like that in your circle of friends, Uh, but it's it's a a nickname that's well-earned. Jeremiah was a prophet around 612 BC in the nation of Judah, a couple hundred years after Isaiah, and Jeremiah was given a particular task among God's people. He was told that he would warn God's people that if they did not repent, there would be judgment. He he was meant to warn them that their sin was going to bring judgment on them. But God gives uh, sort of some disheartening news up front. He says, hey, this is what I have called you to do, but you should know up front that it's not going to work. So so ahead of time, uh, I want you to know that you can't take a wife, you can't have children, you can't have a family. You are called specifically to warn Israel of their coming sin, and you should know they're not going to repent, and I am going to destroy them. So it's, a, it's a, a mission that is doomed to failure from the very outset. This is why he receives the title, The Weeping Prophet. And in our passage, God is speaking through Jeremiah. He's indicting Israel for their sin. So with that in mind, hear uh, the word of the Lord this morning. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. At this point, I'm sure that everybody, at least at one point or another, has seen a portion of Law & Order. There's like 10,000 seasons of Law & Order and 50,000 spinoffs. But 
inevitably, in every episode of this sort of like true crime TV show, uh, there's a courtroom scene where the, the particular criminal is put on trial and you've got the, the prosecutor from the state who is trying to convict this man or this woman of some crime and then you've got the defendant who's arguing that they're innocent or that there are mitigating circumstances that don't make it as serious as it seems to be and without fail, the defendant or the prosecutor will always call a witness to the stand, somebody who was there when the crime took place. Somebody who saw what happened. Somebody who can say, yes, this person is guilty, or no, this person is innocent. Yes, I saw them do it. No, I didn't. And what uh, Old Testament scholars have noted, especially in this particular section of Jeremiah, is that what's playing out is essentially a courtroom scene, uh, that God is prosecuting Israel, that Jeremiah is sort of serving as the attorney, the mouthpiece for God, but it's God who is charging Israel with a crime. And God calls a witness to the stands. But he doesn't call who you'd think. He doesn't call another prophet. He doesn't call another nation. God calls creation to the stands. Did you notice that? He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. It's as if he speaks to every cloud on every planet orbiting every star in every galaxy. And he says, look at what has taken place. Look at the horror of what my people have done. Look at the evil of what Israel has done. And he describes their sin in two different ways, and they sort of help us get our minds around the fullness of what's taking place. The first thing he says that Israel has done is that they have forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. Now, I am pretty firmly convinced that when somebody converts to Christianity, especially in the United States, they should be required to spend at least one night in the woods or on a mountain alone. Uh, and this is not because I have some like weirdo view of, of masculinity or hyper-macho Christianity or anything like that, but it's because the images that the Bible uses to describe spiritual realities very often feel out of touch with people who live in one of the wealthiest nations in human history. The, the, the pictures that the Bible uses to describe things like sin and salvation and discipleship, they're, they're agricultural images. They're images of people who didn't live in cities where they had water on tap. And I wonder if this picture might not be like that. This is an image that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because you could walk out into our lobby and we have water fountains. You could go to the Circle K and for 99 cents, you could buy Circle K brand purified water. Water is easy to come by in our particular location. But that's not the case for most people in human history or even most people around the world today. I had a a little glimpse into this, and it was a microscopic glimpse by comparison to many others. Uh, When my brother and I were hiking on the Appalachian Trail a couple years ago, we were hiking through one of our favorite places on the trail, Rowan Mountain State Park. It borders sort of Tennessee, North Carolina. And uh, it was was a short hike. It was only 36 hours. We were going to hike up to the top of the mountain and set up, and then we were going to hike back, be back by three or four the next day. But it was uh, as we set up camp, about five or six hours hiking away from our car that we realized we had not brought enough water. And there was also no water on the trail. And this was not like a life or death situation, right? We had some water. We knew we could make it. But we also knew that if we weren't careful, that five or six hour hike back to our car up and down mountains was going to be done uh, without any H2O. 
And in that moment, these water bottles from McDonald's became the equivalent of bricks of gold, right? They became precious to us. We didn't just sort of like toss them around haphazardly. We didn't forget them when we took our packs off to rest. Like we counted and we recounted and we quadruple and triple counted. Like we, we didn't want to lose these. They were precious. And I wonder if that's not a small picture of the reality in Jeremiah's world, in the ancient world. Cities are built around water supplies because water is hard to come by. It's the only way to survive by being close to the water. And God describes himself like a fountain of living water, a source of life in the midst of a difficult world. But he says that his people, in their sin, have forsaken that. They've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. But it's not just that they've said, I'm not interested in water anymore. I'm I'm gonna go off into the desert and I'm just gonna die of thirst. No, they've forsaken him. That's the first part of this description of sin. But then he says that they've gone and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns. These were sort of like basins that held water. They've dug for themselves cisterns which can hold no water. So they've turned from the Lord, who is the fountain of living water, and they've turned to something else to provide life. Up until this point, we've been, we've been using kind of the imagery of Jeremiah of wells and cisterns and fountains. But I think that at its core, this is a really good picture of what happens in our hearts whenever we give ourselves over to sin. Whether that's by accessing images on the internet that we ought not to, whether that's by gossiping, whether that's by being cruel or unkind to our spouse, whether that's by harboring bitterness in our hearts, towards people who have wronged us. Whenever we turn away from God's call to live in obedience to his commandments and we turn towards something else, we are in essence saying, you know, I know that you promised me life, but that's not good enough. I think I can find life over here in something else. I know you promised to be the fount of living waters, but I don't really believe that. I think I can find life over here. I think I can dig my own well. And this gets us to one, one of the ultimate horrors of sin is that whenever we turn away from God towards other things, we inevitably turn towards things that God has made and try to substitute them for him. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, a, couple, a couple months ago now, my wife and I were driving through our side of town and we noticed that this new shop had opened up. And it was uh, kind of, I think shops like this are becoming more common. It was kind of like a new agey sort of crystal tarot card shop. And uh, whenever I see things like this, I, I actually tend to s- stop in, not because I'm interested in practicing anything like this, but because I think this is on the rise. And I'm trying to get a sense of where our culture is going. And so Mickey and I stopped in the store and kind of looked around, and they had what you would expect. They had, you know, 15 different kinds of tarot cards. They had all the books on astrology and the uh, grimoires for people who practice Wicca. And then they had this massive section of crystals, different sorts of rock formations that were admittedly beautiful to look at. And some of them very expensive and very impressive. And... uh, they had a crystal for just about everything you could imagine. So are you struggling with depression? Well, you know, wear this necklace with this particular stone. Are you struggling with anxiety? Uh, this will help with that. Are you struggling with health issues? This will clear up that. Are you struggling with, you know, an oppressive presence? Here's, here's some stuff that you can keep in your home to protect you from that. And l- let me just kind of, this is an aside. This isn't the main point of the sermon. 
if you are a Christian in this room and you are doing that, stop. Um, if you're looking for a mystical spiritual experience, pray the Lord's Prayer. Celebrate the Eucharist or communion. Don't go towards external spiritualities and, and weird mystical practices, thinking you need to go there in order to find something deep and rich and true. There is plenty of resources in Christianity. You don't need to step outside of it. So please get rid of your crystals or just use them as decoration. But stop trying to find the cure for your anxiety in them. Okay, back to the point of the sermon. So, uh, Mickey and I left this particular store and we were getting in the car and I said, what do you think? How does all this strike you? And she said, you know, it doesn't scare me. Like I don't, I know the blood of Jesus covers me. I'm not afraid that I'm gonna track anything back from the store or anything like that. It just really just makes me sad. The whole thing just makes me sad. And I said, okay, well, what is it about this that makes you sad? And she said, you know, when I look at these beautiful stones and rock formations, the, the first place that my mind goes is what a tremendous and powerful God we serve that he has created things like this even though they're unnecessary. Even though we don't need them, he creates things that are beautiful because he's a God who cares about beauty. That's where my mind goes. But for the people who have a vested spiritual interest in this, rather than looking at what God has made and celebrating his goodness, they take what God has made and they turn it into a God for themselves. And I think this is what ultimately lies at the heart of our sin in, in the way that Jeremiah describes it. We take the things God has given us and things he's given us so that we might know him. And instead of seeing creation as a mirror through which we can see God himself, or seeing, instead of seeing it as a window through which we can see God himself, creation becomes a mirror where we worship things that are created like us in the place of their creator. This is Paul's point in Romans 1, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange the glory of the immortal creator for creation. We would rather worship what is like us than what is altogether different from us. And it's sad because ultimately we're settling for less. Which is greater, the rock or the one who made it? It's a sad exchange. It leaves us impoverished. And yet this is what happens when we sin. Think about one particular sin in scripture, the sin of drunkenness. Now, I don't think it's a sin when you're of age to consume alcohol in moderation. I think that can be a good gift from God. But man, there is no way to read the Bible in which drunkenness is not labeled sinful. And the number of excuses we give for this practice. It's been a tough week just trying to take the edge off. I just need something to pick me up. I'm anxious, I need to calm myself down. The list goes on and on and on. And all of these things that we go to substances to, to fill, God himself promises to be. We're told that we can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We're told that in his presence there is fullness of joy. We're told that the Lord himself is our refuge and our strong tower, our strength when we're weak. These are the words of scripture, and instead of going to God for that, we go to something he's made instead, and we're settling for less. This is what happens in sin. This is why if you look at the wider context of Jeremiah chapter two, it's all tied to idolatry. We are taking what God has made, and we're putting it in his 
place. But can I just tell you that no matter what it is that you go to for living water or where you think you'll find living water apart from the Lord, it won't last. Now, I'm not saying that, that you won't find satisfaction for a while. I'm not saying that you might not have a couple days, weeks, months, even years in which you feel satisfied. But I am telling you that any well that you go to apart from the well that is the God of the Bible will eventually run dry and you will find yourself hitting sand. You will find that it is a broken cistern that can hold no water. I've uh, developed this habit over the last couple years of uh, naming my cats after dead theologians. Um, So uh, my first cat I named uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch. It was named after the bishop in the early church who was fed to the lions, which I thought was ironically funny, but nobody laughs at except for you guys now. <laughs> uh, my next cat I named uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop around 400 AD. He uh, led the church, of, the, the church of Jesus during the fall of the Roman Empire. But his life didn't begin like a bishop's life would. He was raised by a pagan father and a Christian mother, uh, and very early on, he left the Christianity of his upbringing, and he ran about as far as you could go from it. Uh, If we're talking about sort of new age spiritual practices, Augustine joined multiple cults and and various religious movements that were in opposition to Orthodox Christianity. He had a long-term relationship with a prostitute, and he spent most of his life living in excess until he was about 30 years old. And he found himself absolutely and utterly miserable. He found himself enslaved to the things that had promised to give him life. And this is what is always true of sin, is it promises freedom, but it gives us chains instead. It was there that he encountered the Lord. He realized that the things he'd given himself to, they were broken cisterns, they could not hold any water. And so he turned from his sin, he placed his faith in Jesus, and at that point, everything in his life began to change he realized that he had been running from the the one true source of joy and truth and goodness and beauty and running towards things that the one true God had made, thinking that they could be God for him when they could never make good on that promise. Sometimes, I actually think many times, God in his mercy reaches out and stops us. It may take days, weeks, months, years. But there are times where God reaches out to these broken cisterns that we've been going to and looking for joy and life in, and he says, enough. This won't satisfy you. Let me explain what I mean, because I think ultimately this is an act of mercy on God's part. Um, When I was in elementary school, I was obsessed with the idea of having a swimming pool. Some of my friends had swimming pools. Uh, And I had no concept of money, and so I wanted a swimming pool, and I thought if I just saved up a few months' allowance, we could pull it off. And ultimately, my parents said, I don't don't know that that's going to work. And so I moved on to the next option. We were spending the summer kind of um, hanging out a couple days a week with my cousins at my aunt and uncle's house. And so I went to my aunt, and I said, hey, if I dig a big enough hole in the backyard, will you make it a swimming pool? And I don't know if she was really paying attention to me or not. Uh, because she said, oh, yeah, maybe, we'll see. And so that was all I needed. 
Like I, I got my brother, I got my cousin, and we started digging. And in my elementary school mind, we dug the deepest hole you can imagine. At one point, we were all supposed to come in for lunch, nobody could find my brother. It was because he had fallen into the hole we were digging. Granted, he was like three years old at that point, so the hole still could have only been like up to my waist. But at the end of the summer, I went to my aunt and I said, hey, I've dug the hole, can we make it a pool? And she said, you know, we might have to wait till next summer, Travis. Now, I forgot about it by next summer. Right? I, I learned a little bit more about how money worked and I gave up on the concept of having a swimming pool. But if I had come back next summer with more friends and we kept digging, and at the end of that summer, she said, maybe next summer, and I came back the next summer with even more people, again and again and again, digging and digging and digging, and if my aunt kept saying, maybe next time, there would come a point where that would switch from being a funny story about being a naive kid, and it would become a story about cruelty. Continuing to let me dig, knowing full well there was nothing at the bottom. The more I dug, the more people I roped into my scheme, the more work I put in. If my aunt knew full well for years that there was never going to be a swimming pool and she just kept letting me do it, that wouldn't be her being merciful. That would be her being mean. But the same thing is true of our idols. The same thing is true of, of sin in our life. There is no pool at the bottom. It doesn't matter how much you dig. There is no fountain of living waters, no matter how deep the hole goes. And in God's mercy, sometimes he reaches out and he says, enough, and he takes the shovel away. And that may feel cruel in the moment, but it's not. It's God being merciful and saying, there is life nowhere else but in me, no matter how far you dig and no matter how deep you go. The imagery of water in Scripture doesn't just stop in the book of Jeremiah. It's carried through the rest of Scripture, and maybe one of the most uh, famous portions in which this theme is picked up again comes in John chapter 4. The disciples have left Jesus, and he's sitting at a well in the region of Samaria, and we're told that right around noon, a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Now, there's some cultural work we need to do to make sense of that because the time frame is not insignificant. In the ancient world, much like the modern world in Florida, uh, it was pretty hot at noon. And drawing water was hard work. You're carrying these stone jars, it was, it was a lot. And so very often, the women of the city who were charged with drawing water would go early in the morning in the cool of the day. You actually read this in the Gospels. That's when the women go to the empty tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. Why? Because it's hot. And, and you don't want to do your work at the hottest point of the day. But this woman doesn't go with the crowd. She goes by herself at noon, at the point where she is least likely to encounter anybody else. Because it seems as though she's not interested in being seen. She's trying to hide from her community. And it becomes clear over the course of Jesus' interaction why that is. From both a Jewish and a Samaritan perspective, she has lived a life that has been marked by sin. She's moved from marriage to marriage to marriage. The man that she's currently living with isn't her husband. And to use Jeremiah's language, her life is littered with broken cisterns. She has sought life and joy and fulfillment in every possible way, only to find herself at the end empty and isolated, and that is always how sin leaves us. 
isolated and empty. But it's here that Jesus meets her. It's here that she has an encounter with Christ and he has this conversation with her. They go back and forth about who's gonna draw water from the well and eventually Jesus turns the conversation in a spiritual direction. And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for water because I provide living water. Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I wonder how many of us in this room are in a similar state to the woman that Jesus encountered at the well. Our lives are littered with broken cisterns that we've dug out, sins that we have coddled, thinking that they would bring life. But at the end, we're only met with sand. Maybe it's your first time at church in a while. Maybe it's your first time at church ever. Or maybe you've been here for a long time, but there's some things that you haven't been willing to share with the leaders in your life. Here's the good news, is that while our sin is serious and weighty, while at the heart of our sin we have forsaken the fountain of living waters, the good news of the gospel is that though we forsake the fountain, the fountain does not forsake us. Though we turn from the Lord, the Lord is faithful and steadfast to forgive. Jesus is still in the business of meeting people at their wells and offering them water that doesn't run dry. And that offer is a free gift. You don't have to dig anymore. Jesus has done that work for you. But it does require that you put your shovel down, that you repent of the sins you've embraced, that you turn away from the things that you have substituted for God himself. And I can't guarantee that if you do that, every problem in your life will go away. I've been telling you the story of St. Augustine. Soon after Augustine converted to Christianity, both his mother and his son died. His life was not an easy one. But years after these experiences, looking back on his conversion, Augustine wrote what has become one of the most famous lines in literature in his autobiography. He says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I believe with all of my heart that if you turn from the broken cisterns and you return to the fount of living waters, you may not find a life of ease, but you will find a life of abundance, the likes of which you never thought possible.